will be the fourth installment in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's consider the, the rest of this chapter in the context of putting on and putting off. And there's some things that we're supposed to take out of our lives by the power of God, and there are some things that we're supposed to put into our lives and on our lives. And if you're charting this passage out, it's pretty easy. You can just make two columns. We'll look at that a little bit later. But first, let's read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and we'll go all the way to 24. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which, is, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Yes, we are new creations in Christ. That's our identity. That's who we are positionally. Isn't that true? But there's still a practical application to us being new creations in Christ. We need to live out the reality of being new people, of the new self. The first three chapters of this book talk a lot about our wealth in Christ, who we are in him, because he gave his life for us, how we're adopted, how we have been predestined, how he has brought us in by his grace. Our identity is there. Yet this portion is the next section, this chapter four, and it's very practical in the way that we live out our Christianity. So don't be confused. This isn't a passage about how to be saved. Listen, this is a passage about how to live if you are saved, right? In order to live in a manner that's consistent with our identity, you're a child of God. In order to live in a manner that's consistent with our identity, we need instruction, don't we? And that comes from the Word of God. We need power. Who does that come from? The Holy Spirit. So we need instruction, we need power, and we need connectedness. We need fellowship. That comes from the body of Christ. This is a sanctification section of the Bible. So whenever you come to the Word and you're thinking, is this justification or is this sanctification? This is definitely a sanctification passage. You and I becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the part of Ephesians that is focused on works. And once again, not works that can save us because we're not saved by our works, but works that we do in order to give our Lord good pleasure. And then chapter 6 is about warfare. This is the worthy walk. Would you consider learning a few verses so that you can have clarity in communicating and remembering the difference between what the Bible says about you positionally and about who you are practically? When I'm grasping to understand 
who I am in Christ, my identity, I go to verses like Ephesians 2.8 that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a, the gift of God. That's one of those verses, those standout verses that we can go to and say, it just sums up this truth of who we are in Christ, how we've been adopted by his grace and been brought in. I also think of when we study Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it, the second half of, half of that verse makes it very clear, doesn't it? By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That means no person on earth is going to be saved by good works. Yet here we are now in this very practical section, and let's learn a couple more verses about how since you are a prince, act like a prince. You like to hear that you're a princess? But are you living like you're a princess? It's one of the things in the news recently when it comes to the prince, isn't it? How shameful it is that he acts in a manner that's not consistent with royalty. Maybe you're a fan of his, maybe you're not, right? But the whole attitude is, why is he acting like this if he's a prince? He's not acting according. How much more shameful is it for us if we don't live in a manner consistent with our heavenly father, consistent with our eternal body of Christ, the people around us? So don't live like a ragamuffin. Live like royalty, not in the sense of pride, not, but in the sense of being predestined and adopted. So here's a couple of verses about practical living before we get into these verses that we read. I think of this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. The second half says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Pretty clear, huh? Let every person who says they're a Christian depart from the evil way. Let everybody who says, I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me, no longer live in sin. What else do I think of? I think of the very end of Romans chapter 13, verse 14. There it tells us to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. What a sanctification verse, right? Don't make any way for that to get into your life. So that's why we are singing these sanctification songs tonight, like Take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it, right? Sanctification song. God willing, later we'll sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Sanctification song. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Lord, I, I need your power to walk in a way that's consistent with my calling and with my adoption into your family. That is what the Lord desires, worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. So this section is from the positional to the practical, but it's also from the corporate to the personal, isn't it? Because the last couple of verses were definitely about the church. And remember that the church works effectively with mature members, that the church is only as stable as the individual's that comprise the church, that the health of the church depends upon how healthy in the Lord each one of us are. If there are weak members, there will be a weak church. If there are mature members, there will be a mature church, a strong church. It's good to be grown up in God. One of you texted me this week after reading this 17 through 24 in Ephesians chapter 4, 
and said, seems that 17 through 24 are so appropriate for today as well as 2,000 years ago. God's word is right where we're living. It's the society that's all around us. It's timeless. The same truths, the same issues, as the way people put it today, the same problems were haunting people back then, the same sins. So let's put this in two columns. Would you put up that slide, Christiana? As we look at these verses that we read, you can divide it up into the old and the new, the old self and the new self. You can divide it up into what we should put off and what we should put on. And there in the background of, of the slide, that's the theater in Ephesus, seats 12, no, 20, no, 25,000 people. That's a pretty big arena, isn't it? It's huge. Three stories, 50 feet tall, about 50 feet tall. So it's interesting because this arena, this theater, is probably about 2,200 years old. So it's the same place. It's the same place that was there when the book of Ephesus was written. It's also the same place where a riot broke out, and we learn about that riot in the book of Acts chapter 19. Paul was there in the city of Ephesus, and he was preaching to the people, and the preaching was so effective that people were turning away from the fake goddess Diana, and they were turning to the Lord. And Demetrius was a silversmith in Ephesus, he made little statues of Diana, along with many other craftsmen, and they had a great business going, selling these little statues. But when Paul and his co-laborers came into town, many people got saved, and they abandoned their idols. Even though their idols were telling them it was okay to be sexually immoral, the people were coming to new life in Christ. And here in this very arena... The people were all stirred up by the silversmith, Demetrius. And they grabbed Paul's co-laborers, Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul's friends wouldn't even let him go into the theater. The city clerk defended Paul, but the whole city was in a riot, in an uproar, because they said this, Paul and his co-laborers are leading people astray by telling them that our gods are no gods at all. That gods that are made with men's hands are no gods to be served. What a great testimony. So now here it is, Paul now writing to those who are in Ephesus after they have been established in the Lord. Were you reading just a couple weeks ago, there was a discovery made about concrete in Rome and about Roman buildings. Most of you probably weren't paying attention, but I pay attention to stuff like that. Because for hundreds and even thousands of years, We've wondered, how is it that these structures are still standing? You say they're made out of concrete, but 2,200 years old and they're not completely rubble? How did they do that? So for the longest time, people have wondered, how is it that the Pantheon, listen to this, it's the largest unsupported concrete dome, and it still stands today in Rome. How is it that we have so-called ruins like this? And at MIT some of the civil and environmental engineers 
found that there was a, some lime coming to the surface on this concrete. And for a long time, people thought, oh, that was just the Romans being shoddy in their com- concrete mix. And the engineer wrote and said, that just didn't make sense to me because they were so meticulous about their building. They were such good designers and they were such good builders. And they found in their research that the Romans are, did something back then that we don't do today. They hot mixed their concrete and it made it so even if it cracked, it would self-heal. And today, just a couple of weeks ago, they came out with how they've been able to reproduce this process. So we have these structures, we have this, these buildings that are, that are standing to this day right there where Paul was, the very building where the people who read this epistle were sitting. So let's consider the things on this list, and let's go by put-off. We'll do four put-offs and one put-on, and we won't cover all of them today, obviously. If your lists look kind of like mine, first of all, put-off futility of mind. The Bible is saying to me and to you, there's a certain way of thinking that's empty. And that way of thinking, that futility of mind, will affect the way you live your life. And God's word is saying to me and to you that just like you would take off your grungy clothes after you're working outside and you're all filthy, filthy, you're to take off or you're to put off futility of mind and then put on the newness of life in Christ. What is this futility of thinking? There's a lot of effort still. It doesn't say there's not effort. But that effort doesn't end in anything worthwhile. It's emptiness. Lacks meaning. Futility was spoken of by King Solomon. I'm going to ask you tonight to let his life, to let his testimony speak to you. King Solomon was filthy rich. He was the richest man in the world. He was also extremely intelligent, very wise. He knew a lot about buildings, and he didn't just know about them, but he designed them and had them built. He knew a lot about botany and plants, and he didn't just know about them. He had all those gardens put together. And he wasn't just good in science and math. He was also excellent in the Proverbs, obviously. We have the written word of his excellent intellect. So he's filthy rich. He's super smart. Needless to say, he also had many beautiful women around him at all times. Didn't he? Tons and tons of wives. He had the best food. He had all of the comforts of life that could possibly afford him. Now listen to what he said about this way of living, this futility. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more 
than all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. This was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. That is the emptiness of life apart from Christ. I hope that when you taste ungodliness, it tastes terrible to you, (laughs) that it's empty, that you see its futility, that you don't go back to that way of living because it will not profit you anything. Yet the Psalms tell us so clearly, Psalm 36, isn't it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That empty way of thinking where we're going to strive, we're going to work, we're going to chase after everything we've always wanted. At the end of the day, you will come up empty. And so the, the Bible tells us, don't fall for that futility, for that empty way of thinking. Walk in the new self. Number two, put off darkened understanding. Now, I connected darkened understanding uh, with also being ignorant and blind. Do you see that in the verses? This means to not be able to comprehend or to not comprehend the grace of God, the goodness of God, this darkened understanding. We are not to despise this in other people, but we're to despise it in ourselves. Right now, we run this risk. We watch the news, we see our society, and aren't there a lot of people who are darkened in their understanding? They're ignorant and they're blind. And we can start to despise them, right? And look on and say, how could they be so clueless? How could they be in such error? And the danger would be is that we would be angry and sinning in that anger against them because of their blindness of heart, because of their darkened understanding. Now, I'm not saying we should want to be that way. What I'm saying is that this passage is not about that. It's about us not thinking the way the world thinks. Why should we be darkened in our understanding? We're the ones who have said, once I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So put off that blindness. Take off that blindness. Don't go back to it again. At the men's conference, this men's retreat this last year, I ran into a friend, and it's good that I can share conversations that I have from those places because you know it's not with you. And he was telling me, I just have this real problem with the blindness of the world. It just bothers me, and I just get so I can't stand people. It makes me sick, right? And that attitude, that we should be sick of the sin, but that attitude towards the people won't help us reach them for the Lord, will it? But in our own lives, we should realize we're no longer cloaked. We no longer have a veiled understanding. Your eyes have been enlightened, haven't they? And so now to live in a way that's dark and ignorant, that's what we should put off, isn't it? Truthfully, it's more difficult for me to be patient with people that are knowledgeable than patient with people who are ignorant. When I look at those of this world who do not know Jesus, 
Isn't it true that they live in the dark? Jesus even said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. What a powerful statement. Like they're blind. They're ignorant. They've been believing this lie that's been given to them, that's, that they're, they're buying the lie. And, and I know it's, it's difficult, but how about somebody who knows that the lie is a lie, but they're still going for it? And they're drawn to the darkness, even though they've seen the light. The word of God says, let it not be this way with you. There's a reason that most of the time the Bible talks about patience and long-suffering. It's in regards to the body of Christ. Check that out in your Bible. You can go back to chapter 4, verse 2. This very chapter, verse 2, it talks about long-suffering. It's in the context of the church. Why is that? Because we have high expectations for each other. You expect me to act like I'm not blind. You don't expect me to be ignorant. Same when it comes to me and my expectation of you. So we need that patience. But the Lord is saying here, do not go back. Take off this darkened understanding. Let's listen to Toby Mac's old song. It's not that old. The other day, Undeniable. Which is harder to believe? That you don't exist or that you orchestrated all of this? It's harder for me to believe, way harder for me to believe, that God doesn't exist. And I submit that to this unbelieving world. And I say, yes, they're in darkness. They lack understanding. They're blind. But let's put off that blindness. Let's put off that darkened understanding. Number three, put off uncleanness. Do you see that one? I know I'm not necessarily going in order because I want to get to at least one from the put on or the new category. Uncleanness. Take off that uncleanness. Go down to verse 22. It says that the old self, the old man, is growing in corruption. That instead of growing in righteousness and holiness, the old self grows more and more corrupt in that uncleanness. I drove by a billboard recently. It was a casino advertisement and it said, good, clean, fun on the top of it. You've probably seen it. Good, clean, fun at the casino. And here they go. Now, this might be clean according to some people's standards, but right there in the billboard, there's bountiful alcohol, which will hook you in and make you addicted. Women, it always works this way on the advertisement, that look way too good for the guy in the advertisement. And there's two or three of them in there. And in real life, they wouldn't give him a second look, right? But good, clean, fun. Have we gotten to the place where we think that just because our addiction isn't as bad as the addiction of the world, that it's clean? Or that just because our morality isn't as twisted as this immorality of the world, that it's actually moral? God calls us to cleanness and to desire that, to take off the corruption, to take off the uncleanness. Have we actually started to believe that just because our morality is a step above that it's somehow good. I used to think that our lakes around here were pretty clean until recently I went back to Tahoe again. And I was like, wow, this is clean. I forgot how clean it was. I dropped my sunglasses. They fell down in the water. Must have, I don't know, 20 feet at least. The next day, Christians swam down there and 
got them off the bottom for me. That's how clear it was, right? You see, cleanliness is, is a matter of us being used to something, isn't it? How clean is it anyways? The Word of God says here, take off that uncleanness. See uncleanness for what it is. And don't wear it. Take it off. Put it away. Would you drink a glass of water that had just a drop of urine in it? Most of us wouldn't. But it's just a little bit unclean. (laughs) Proportionally speaking, you probably won't get sick. That's what I think anyways. But it's just a little bit. But when it comes to our lives in Christ, we're supposed to be putting off that unclean. And what will you hear, even from within the body of Christ? Oh, that's legalism. You won't watch that. You won't go to that place. You won't talk that way. Oh, you must be in bondage. No, I'm free, actually, because I know what's clean and I know what's dirty. And I don't, I don't want that in my life. I don't want it in my heart. I don't want it in my family. I don't want it in my church. And I'm not saved by that, but I want to live that way because the Lord has saved me. So put off uncleanness, directly related to the growing in corruption that's spoken of. Number four, put off the former conduct. Do you see in verse 17 also how it speaks of the Gentiles? Well, it's not putting down all Gentiles. It's saying the rest of the Gentiles, right? Those who are a part of your ethnic group who are not saved, don't be like the rest of them. Don't be like those in your culture who do not know Christ. Don't live like those who are lost. Put off the former conduct. Every single one of us have the old self to deal with. Every one of us. This happens quite often when I tell people that I I was saved when I was five years old and praise God, I was saved young. They somehow think that I didn't have the flesh to deal with. We're Christians. We believe in human depravity. And believe me, it's a good thing to be saved as soon as possible. Let's put it that way. But does that mean that we don't have to put off the former self? Does that mean that there's conduct that isn't going to creep into our lives and take hold? Does it mean that we don't have the flesh to deal with? Hopefully you won't be duped by that. When it comes to the Lord saving us, him rescuing us. One of the wonderful things about being saved at a young age is that hopefully sin won't get its hooks into you as deeply, right? Because you'll take God at his word. You won't have to go out and experience the folly of every single sin. You'll believe God when he says, this is destructive. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it is destruction, but we all have the old self to deal with. I want you to think about the sins that began and even increased while we're saved. I mean, it might be a little disheartening to think of it, but it's not as though we need to go back to the days before we were saved to find sin. Isn't it true that in many lives, there is sin that takes root and even flourishes in a life while that person is a child of God. They, they, go, they go and they find it, and they start to live worse than the former self. 
And so the word of God is telling you and me, don't do that because every single one of us have the capacity to walk back into bondage again. To, to walk back into that darkened state of mind, that futility. Every one of us have the capacity. The Lord hasn't taken away our choices, has he? To say, I'm going to start living like the former self. Why would the Bible warn us against the former conduct if we didn't have the capacity to go back and live that way again? Let's be honest. Lord, I don't want to be going backwards. Moving forward, the current conduct, not the former conduct, not being duped by the world. I bring your attention now to verse 20. I know we already read it. Let's read 20 and 21 again. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So here we have a put on, because this is put off and put on. And God willing, in the next study, we'll do more put-ons. But this is put-on learning through Jesus. Let me ask you, did Jesus teach you this? Whenever you're about to think a thought or say a word or perform an action, can you ask yourself this question? Did Jesus teach me how to talk like this? Did Jesus teach me how to act like this? Did Jesus teach me how to think like this? If not, then it's not worth learning. We're even told, and I quoted the end of the verse, we're even told in Romans 13, 14, that we're to put on the Lord Jesus. So in this put on and put off, we're not just putting on what Jesus taught us. We're actually putting him on. Lord, your nature, let it become mine. We're to put on Christ. We're told in the word of God to put on the mind of Christ. It mentions here in these verses, the truth is in Jesus, that we have his word washing over our lives so that we can be practically cleansed to live out lives that are holy and righteous. This really is about becoming more and more like our Savior, like our Lord, like our Redeemer, like our King. That old behavior Verse 20 is saying, verse 21 is saying, you didn't learn that from Jesus. I know that. Have you ever seen your kids doing something and you're appalled? You see your kids sin. And then you say to them, who taught you that? Never said that before? You ever hear your kids say something? Where did you hear that? I want to know. Did somebody tell you that? I didn't tell you that. Never spoken to your kids that way? There's a couple people nodding their heads. I, I want to know where you heard that. I want to know where you saw that. Because you didn't learn it from Jesus. It's the same principle here, isn't it? Live in the manner that you learned from the Lord. And all those avenues that the enemy uses to appeal to our flesh, you say, oh, try this, learn this. If I didn't learn it from Jesus, it's not worth living. Isn't that true? So beware of what provision you make in your mind and your heart because the Lord is the one that teaches us righteousness and by the power of his spirit, he gives us the grace to carry out what he shows us here in his word. If the Lord gives us more days, I hope that this coming Sunday we can learn more put-offs and put-ons 
if you could carry that through what you're seeing here, would you put some of these together? Are they similar to each other over on this side or on that side? Carry it right through the end of the chapter if you lack a way to organize it and say, is this a put on or a put off? What other passage in the, passages in the Bible talk about this? I saved some of these for Sunday, so if you can't be here, no, be here. Let's put it that way. If you're not sick or on vacation, be here. Lord, I thank you for loving me when I certainly was not lovable, Lord. I thank you that you died for the former, but now you've made us brand new. Lord, if I didn't have you as my hope, I, I just don't know what I'd do, Lord. If I didn't have your power and your strength and your word and the future that you've prepared, I pray for us, Lord, as we, as we look to you, that you would give us the clarity that's portrayed in your word and that the cloudiness would be taken away, that it really would be as clear as two columns the old and the new, the put off and the put on, that which displeases you and that which pleases you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to, to communicate why we, we want to be different. Show us, Lord, how to shine for you to this world. It's pretty clear to us that it's dark, but we don't always know how to reach people that are in that darkness, Lord, that are in that ignorance. And I, I pray that in our lives they would, would see you. And I pray that in our words they would see you too. I pray that everywhere we go, in our, in our towns, in our neighborhoods, and on our streets, Lord, at school and at work, and that there would be that distinction in our lives. More of you and less of us, Lord, way less of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.